Good evening. Welcome to night two of uh, our parish mission, our Lenten mission. Father Starkovich has had a busy, uh, busy day. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in preparation and talking with different members of our staff and our our, our parish, uh, celebrating masses and many things upon the tons of confessions that we've been having around here. Just uh, uh, we'll bang that confessional drum just a little bit louder and a little bit longer uh, next Wednesday. That's tomorrow. Uh, from 5 until 6.30, uh, uh, we'll be here in church offering the Sacrament of Reconciliation along with all those other parishes in the Archdiocese and deanery-wide penance service uh, Wednesday a week from now, uh, beginning at Most Holy Trinity at 7 p.m., 7 p.m. Um, and uh, until the last person comes. So uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to take advantage of that sacrament, uh, please, please, please uh, beg God for the grace uh, and the desire to do so. And so, uh, without further ado, uh, we'll give you Father Jeff. Oh, uh, one other thing. Uh, there's a table uh, at the front door of the church that's set up right next to my confessional uh, uh, that is, uh, uh, has information on it specifically with regard to uh, those open hours uh, that we need assistance with uh, for committed adorers in our parish adoration chapel. Uh, our parish uh, is uh, a very, very uh, faith-filled parish. You know, they say you will know them by their fruits. Uh, the, the wonderful amount of vocations to the priesthood, uh, the depth of faith and spiritual maturity that this parish has, uh, the many blessings that we've had as a parish community and continue to, it comes as no, uh, uh, no surprise whatsoever uh, that it comes from uh, people uh, in perpetual adoration, right, at the heart of worship, right, in front of our blessed Lord in the Eucharist. And so, uh, please, uh, if you have considered, or if you haven't considered, please do so, uh, uh, assisting us in uh, continuing this, uh, the, this, this perpetual prayer in front of the Blessed Sacrament in our parish. Many, many, many graces come to those who spend an hour a week with our Lord, um, and certainly uh, our many graces come and are affected in our parish as a result as well. And so Father Daniel will be in his regular confessional, uh, and I will be in mine, um, and we'll see you at the end of the mission this evening. God bless you. Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said in reply, Master, we have worked hard all night and have caught nothing. But at your command, I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were tearing. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come to help them. 
They came and filled both boats so that they were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For astonishment at the catch of fish they had made seized him and all those with him. And likewise, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. The last couple of years have really been something. I don't know what, but they've been something. In 2020, we were dealing with all of those uh, key catchphrases, regulations, directives, protocols, whatever word people used. Suspicion was everywhere, and I think that year could probably have a new motto, out of an abundance of caution. In short, fear reigned supreme. I'll leave it to history to make judgments about which decisions were prudent and fruitful and which ones were hastily implemented. But no matter what and no matter where we were, we all experienced it. And we heard those words over and over and over again. Out of an abundance of caution, we have decided to whatever. I sometimes wonder what it would be like, though, if Jesus used those words. Out of an abundance of caution, we can rephrase the gospel that we heard tonight. Imagine if Jesus thought that way. Out of an abundance of caution, stay in the shallow until you're comfortable. And then you can try going deeper when you get ready. Imagine if Jesus, before he had ascended into heaven, told his disciples, go forth and have strategic planning meetings. Sit in your office all day, convene synods, contemplate when the time is right to talk to others about heaven, hell, death, and judgment. And when you do, just go really soft at first. Talk about hell and sin last. And then, after everybody's gotten in touch with their feelings, you can call them to conversion. And then after a few years' worth of meetings, then you baptize them. Sometimes I wonder what St. Paul would do if he visited a normal diocese today. When we read the scriptures and we listen to the words of St. Paul, he was bold. He stood up and just proclaimed the truth, but he always did so in great love. He and St. Peter challenged the world to forget an abundance of caution, but to set out into the deep, lower your nets for a catch, After all, that's how they had been formed and instructed by the Lord. Theirs was truly an apostolic time. It was a time of immense boldness, knowing that they proclaimed something that society did not believe in. They were proclaiming something to a group of people who had never heard it before, and they wanted to change the way they saw everything. But for you and I, we don't get to pick the world that we live in. We don't live in the time of the apostles themselves. And really, in a way, I'm grateful. I mean, I love hot water, right? And I love traveling in my nice, fancy truck. 
And I love crossing the country in an airplane. I don't know, I could probably do away with email after what days are like sometimes. But the culture and the world are changing. But through it all, Christ is present. And what the church boldly proclaims is that no matter what age in which we preach and teach and try to make disciples, he is there to give us the grace necessary to engage the culture of today. Today, we live in a bitter contest between a Christian vision which ruled for centuries and a new secular mindset which is taking its place. The Christian vision maintains that the invisible powers of God and God's grace are more real than the things we perceive with our senses. Instead, a humanistic, materialistic vision started to emerge in the 17th century, almost 400 years ago. This materialism isn't just about science and technology. It didn't just enable us to do things differently. What it's begun to do is change the way we see things around us. There's a little recap of what we spoke of yesterday. Around World War I, Europe was a set of Christendom cultures, although many observers saw that this was changing. For 200 years, a cultural war was being fought within Europe and in many countries in the West that was pushing Christianity out of the way. Christendom society has now been run out the door in Europe over the last century. We're hanging on a little bit longer in America, but it is rapidly changing here, too. American culture was friendly to Christianity, but we all know that that change is happening, too. A rapid change needs a rapid response. Take a quick look at places like Quebec, Belgium, Spain, Ireland. Not that long ago, these were soundly Catholic cultures, while the world around them was entirely secular. In the span of a single generation, it seems like the bottom has fallen out. These countries went from being strongly Catholic to overtly secular. The church and Christians had, have continued with business as usual, while the culture around them changed faster than the church adapted her methods of evangelization. And so the Christian vision eroded until that structure could no longer support itself, and it collapsed quickly. And so what did we look at yesterday? That strategies that are suited to a time of Christendom, where everyone agrees with Christian principles, do not work well in a time of an apostolic setting where the culture around does not operate or make decisions based on Christian principles. We can take a quick look at Latin America, our friends to the south. They have long been a Christendom society. The vision was carried and brought there by the Catholic Church. But now new media, secular governments, and economic factors have imported this secular culture into Latin America and South America. And as a result, without changing the way that the church evangelizes, it's collapsing and fast. 
But it's interesting to note, if we take a quick glance, the rise of Pentecostalism and in some areas the rise of evangelicals. And where we see them making gains, it's because they approach it with a real mission posture, right? They are driven. They have something that they believe in, and they want to spread it. So we come back to America. What do we see? Our patterns don't seem to be working. Children of Catholic parents leave the faith. Catholic schools and universities don't seem to graduate serious Catholic believers. Parishes are not producing vocations to the priesthood and religious life. Religious orders have shriveled up, and so things look terrible. However, America is not the church as a whole. Even the West is not the church as a whole. There are places in the world where we see the church operating from this apostolic mode, places today like Africa and in many places in Oceania. And what do we see? Seminaries bursting at the seams, conversions to the faith. In fact, a friend of mine is a missionary in Tanzania. Uh, she's from the Diocese of Lake Charles. She's operating a little Catholic school and a little uh, formation, house for formation. And I asked her the other day, I said, hey, when's the last time Father Diego did some baptisms? She said, oh, a couple of weeks ago. I said, how many did he baptize? She said, about 180. 180? I said, how many kids do y'all have in catechism? She said, 1,000. I said, well, how many people live in your village? She said, about 1,500. Right? The entire village comes to church. Everybody wants to be a part of it. I said, well, let me ask, what does Father Diego preach about? She said, his homilies sound just like yours. She said, it's the things I grew up hearing our entire life. She said, it's just the people here are open to hearing it. But they do so in a way because it's all new. It's completely new to them. So what do we see? The culture and no culture is ever so corrupt that it becomes immune to the gospel. And this is what we always keep in mind. The world is never so bad that it's immune to the gospel. There is not a people on earth for whom Catholicism cannot be attractive. We've seen this throughout all of history, that the church has something so valuable and precious to offer the world. Our problem is rather that much of the church operates in a Christendom mode, seriously compromised by the ruling vision of the wider culture, or just using strategies that were devised for a different time, a different context. And so it seems like we're not coping with the current culture. And so what do we do? Our task is to find successful ways to engage the members of the church and those who exist outside the church with the truths of the faith. This seems really difficult, and it is. However, it's not impossible, because we see this even in the Old Testament, this clash and this challenge. Let's take a look at the second book of Kings in chapter 6. We find in the second book of Kings in chapter 6, the Aramean army has outnumbered the prophet Elisha, and he's trapped. In fact, he's in a city, and he's being sieged. The king of Aram 
sent a visible army to surround the city that Elisha and his servants were staying in. And this is what the reading says. Informed that Elisha was in Dothan, he sent there a strong force with horses and chariots. They arrived at night and encircled the city. Early the next morning, when the servant of the man of God arose and went out, he saw the force with its horses and chariots surrounding the city. He said, Alas, what shall we do, my lord? Elisha answered, Do not be afraid. Our side outnumbers theirs. Then he prayed, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw that the mountainside was filled with fiery chariots and horses around Elisha. I don't have time to read the rest of the story, but Elisha stopped. He had a moment of faith. He prayed, and with that prayer, the entire Aramean army goes blind. The small Israelite army in the fortification in Dothan charges out of the city walls, handily puts down the opposing army who greatly outnumbered them. Elisha changed their fight simply by his faith in God and the belief that the invisible power of the Lord was stronger than the visible power of the army. See, the church appears to be an underdog when judged by worldly positions. But when we see with the eyes of faith, the church is a divine reality instituted by Christ himself, who is our head, and his presence and his strength go beyond the limits of space and time. And if we keep this in mind when we think about the church, everything is different. You see, the problem that we have today is in our materialistic worldview, we don't think about the spiritual first. But in the apostolic age, the spiritual was always supreme. So, how do we do this? Last, this was all theoretical, but how do we actually do it? We're going to talk about eight steps that we can take today, even in St. Peter Parish, to try and grapple with this. Number one, we have to gain an apostolic attitude. We have to know the time that we minister in. Think about the apostles right after Pentecost. We see this in the Acts of the Apostles. Imagine if they behaved the way that we do. All right, the very first thing we're going to do is we're going to have, we're going to get our evangelization committee together, right? Imagine the apostles get together for an evangelization committee meeting, and they just say, all right, let's take stock of what we have. What resources do we have? Right, how many bishops are here? Well, we got 11 of us. How many priests? Uh, none. How many deacons do we have? Uh, none. Any, any actual theologians? Nope. Do we have any seminarians? Nope. How many people believe in what we're preaching? Well, a few hundred. How many countries have Christians in them at this point in the world? Just one. How many buildings do we have? Zero. I know what that feels like. How many schools do we have? Zero. How many gospels are actually written down for us to hand out and give to people? None. They haven't even been written yet. How much money do we have? Well, 
Judas had it, and he ran off with it. Right? How did the apostles react to this? Right? If this was our meeting, what would we do? We would be all like sad and woe is me. The apostles were filled with joy. They were filled with hope. If they thought like us, they'd have been overwhelmed by discouragement. They had terrible numbers, no vocations, no institutions, and really, everyone disliked them. But they believed it. The apostles were convinced that Christ is the answer to every human problem. And they believed firmly in the heart of their hearts that no matter what they faced, if they did it with the grace and the power of Christ, the Lord would be victorious. See, we have to be convinced of the bad news first, that the human race, by our own rebellion against God, have brought a curse upon ourselves. We have been sold into slavery to the prince of darkness, and there's nothing we can do by our own power to save ourselves. That's the bad news. But there's good news that we're convinced of the fact that God in his mercy has come to set us free from sin and slavery to the devil. That when we turn to God, God transforms our sadness and misery with hope. That the gospel is perfect freedom. It's a holiness that leads to an unfathomable happiness. That a world without God is a desolate wasteland. And that a new life in Christ transforms darkness into light. And so it's a question when we actually get together and have these meetings and we make plans about what we do in parishes. How often, and when's the last time you asked a question in a parish meeting about the salvation of a soul? When was this the objective of a parish meeting? How many souls can we save? Do we believe that our parish success helps the Lord to save souls from hell? Do we believe that our failure to minister well results in souls falling into hell? Do we believe it? See, we have to recognize that we have inherited, that many people have inherited their faith today and are connected to it just by a sentimentality. It's just tradition. It's just what they know, or maybe it's just what they feel. And that sentimentality is not enough anymore. We have to be convinced of the truth and the power of the gospel, that Jesus preached the truth and was often rejected by his audience because of it. He tested the hearts of his believers so that those hearts rose to the challenge, or they fell away, and they were not successful when they were confronted by him. But the Lord knew something very powerful about the human spirit. The Lord understood that 10 believers on fire for Christ generates more new believers than a 1,000 lukewarm or those who have almost a non-existent faith. See, when we look around the history of the church, the church has never grown by mass movements or by large numbers. She grows by the lives of saints who are convinced in the truth of the gospel. 
And so we get back to this first point. In everything we do in parish life, we have to be animated by an apostolic attitude. What does that mean? That the importance of any endeavor in the parish is not found in how many people attended. Don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled you're all here, right? But the importance is not found in how many. The importance is found in the intensity of the flame. How do we judge the success of a parish initiative? Do we look for how many people went? Or can we be truly satisfied if a handful came but went away ignited with a deep faith? Number two, we have to be refused, we have to refuse to be trapped by social analysis, right? We live in a time of enormous data, right? We've got numbers and plots and uh, we can come up with all kinds of projections about everything. We love to hand out surveys and figure things out this way. And what happens is we try to predict the future based on it. Even in this mission, I've shared with you some of the numbers of today. But remember, we are not a church built on numbers. We're built on the Spirit of God. And when the apostles would perform the work of Christ in the church, the unthinkable happens. And we see this all throughout the history of the Catholic Church. I mean, think about who would have ever predicted the conversion of Mexico and what happened in Latin America with the appearance of Our Lady at Guadalupe? Who would have ever expected what happened in France in Lourdes after Our Lady appeared there? We'll take a look at a, a very important moment for us. Let's talk about, we're in Louisiana. We have a deep French culture. The Catholic Church in France in the early 1700s was in dire straits. The French Revolution was attempting to force people to abandon their faith. In 1810 or 1815, a numbers report would have said that the end was near because of forced de-Christianization. And so in 1808, there were 12,000 religious sisters and less than 3,000 priests in France. So in 1808, there were 12,000 sisters and less than 3,000 priests. And as the 1800s went on, that persecution and the forced de-Christianization got stronger and stronger as the decades got bloodier and bloodier. And what happened by 1875? At the height of persecution and forced de-Christianization, there were 135,000 sisters and 30,000 priests. The church increased by tenfold. It was completely illogical. It didn't make any sense according to sociology. The church's enemies thought that the church was collapsing and the end was nigh. In fact, there's a famous story of a, a cardinal who was talking to uh, Napoleon, and Napoleon said, I will destroy the church. And the cardinal turned to him and laughed and said, look, we can't do it ourselves in 2,000 years. What makes you think you're going to do it? Right? These priests and religious had dedicated themselves to living their faith heroically. 
in the midst of intense persecution, and the church flourished. So, we come back to the first question. Instead of judging a program by how many attended, can we ask how it ignites the flame of faith of divine love? That even in the face of great difficulty or intense pressure, this is when human hearts rise to the occasion. Do our initiatives help people to turn away from sin, to live a life of intense holiness? And I have to say, I'm very impressed with a number of the things that the priests are doing here at St. Peter. Do you know how much time I've spent in a confessional since I've been here? I've been here like four days or five days. I think I've spent over four hours in a confessional since I've been here. It's marvelous. Number three, maintain and use institutions differently. What we mean by that is the institutions that we have, if they will thrive going into the future, they have to be personal. And if there's one thing about my generation, we often want to see institutions as institution, as impersonal. Institutions are wonderful and they're necessary. For example, the family, the first primary, most basic institution of all society. The church is an institution. She was founded by Christ. But sometimes the way we talk about these things make them sound impersonal. And so we see this. And when we talk about things in an impersonal way, people fall away from them, right? How often do we hear people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Why? Because they see religion as being a thing, not an encounter with a person. And how does the church respond to this? The church, number one, says she was willed by Christ. The Lord is the one who instituted the church. In fact, the Pope is not the head of the Catholic Church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so to reject the church is to reject Christ. But what is everything about in the church? It's about the church leading us and guiding us into an intense encounter with the persons of God, right? The Trinity. What did the church proclaim? God is a person, a triune of persons with whom I can love and who I can be loved by. We even take a look at the family. Just a century ago, we all assumed we knew what marriage was. Now families ask, why, how, why don't our kids go to church? And why aren't they getting married? The adequate way of living the faith in the past doesn't seem to be adequate any longer. The faith must be purified, and so it's a little bit more rigorous. Even today, a young couple deciding to get married at all without cohabitating, who dedicate themselves to chastity before marriage and raise children without contraception, are viewed as completely strange by all of their peers. However, this is what we're called to do. We're even called to preach it and to challenge the world's understanding of marriage and the family. Why? Because now family life is a real apostolic adventure. It's not a given way of life in today's society. 
And so what do we need to be doing in marriage prep? Marriage preparation needs to be a growth in holiness. Can we form a school for holiness for those young people seeking to get married? Do we equip couples for virtue to understand how do they love each other and grow in love for Christ? Are there tangible supports in parish life for couples and families to grow in holiness? Do we encourage families and do we teach families how to pray, how to come together in small community? The church excelled at this in the apostolic age. Couples would come together in small groups to pray and to worship God. And I do think the future of marriage ministry is in small groups of families committed to a life of discipleship. Let's take a look at another very important institution real quick. Let's take a look at schools. Catholic schools are one of the most important institutions, quote unquote, that we have. And if they are truly going to be personal, the, the mission of the Catholic school must be clear. It must direct us to the person of Jesus Christ. Without a clarity of identity, without understanding its goal or its aim, a school very quickly ceases to be Catholic or even Christian. And especially headed headlong into an apostolic age, the Catholic identity of the school will disappear very quickly. So what do Catholic schools need to do today heading into an apostolic era? Number one, a Catholic school needs to be really careful who they hire and how they train their teachers. Those in a Christendom mode see this kind of apostolic rigor as doctrinaire or intolerant. The idea is we have to row upstream. It's easy to be vague and go along with the flow, but the result for Catholic schools over the last few decades has been disastrous. And we have to remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. We cannot be neutral in Catholic identity. And so what do schools need to do? They need to think deeply about their overall perspective. Because today, the conversation is often about technique. How do we educate? But the good Catholic school asks deeper questions first. What does it mean to be human? What is good? What is good and true and beautiful? What does it mean to be just? What does God expect me to do in my life? What leads me to eternal life? Instead, the temptation can be to ask, what's the current best practice? What's going to bring about the highest return? What's the latest trend in this method? What's the latest professional standard? And the church is going to need to be bold and to proclaim that in some ways today, current best practices can lead to real damage of the soul or at least slowly erode the life of faith. Sometimes the latest pedagogical methods for teaching are built on an anti-Christian anthropology that assume a secular understanding of the world who have as a hidden purpose the destruction of faith. Sometimes insisting on respectability and professionalism 
destroys the gospel because Jesus himself was ridiculed and crucified. And so I think a Catholic school can use a few objective measures. Number one, does a Catholic school make converts to RCIA? If not, why not? Do we educate people in the faith enough to ask them to come in? Do families return to the practice of their Catholicism by participation in the life of the school? Do we see families who have fallen away from the practice of the faith return to the sacraments? Does a Catholic school encourage its Protestant students to become Catholic because of their participation in school community? Number three, the liturgy. How the liturgy is celebrated informs what we believe. If we're vague and we talk about values, our worship becomes vague and beige and lifeless. The celebration of the, of the Paschal mystery is to enter into the demand of the church's liturgy to see how it flourishes. And it's fascinating to me as a young priest uh, who's been at this for uh, 12 years now to see this authentic desire for a renewed liturgy. And I think there's a couple of trends we should pick up on, even in the culture. Uh, last week, it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that really caught my attention. Vinyl records have outsold CDs for the first time in history. Anybody see this? Did y'all know this? All right, y'all are wondering, what am I talking about? Vinyl records, y'all know the old 72s that you bought in the 70s, 60s and 70s, have now outsold CDs and a number of other digital mediums. Why? Because millennials and young people have discovered that the tangible experience of listening to music on a vinyl record involves all of their senses when listening to a CD does not. It's a funny little thing, and it's fascinating. And so I posit, this is just Father Jeff's own personal opinion, that the same uh, method of discovery of vinyl for millennials is what's driving a number of them to seek refuge in parishes with authentically celebrated liturgy. Right? And so in parish liturgy, the goal should be that, real beauty. Make something beautiful which incorporates all of the senses. Use sacred music, good liturgical action. We'll come back to this in a little bit. Because these things stir the soul in a way that words or simplicity don't. How about parish life overall? Our parishes need to be places that develop a relationship with God and Jesus and others. And there were a number of incredibly bright spots, even during the difficult uh, COVID shutdowns, when we went through all of those things, out of an abundance of caution. Right? I know a number of pastors who called every member of their parish. Right? They took the time to call every family. Beautiful, right? They just, while the distance was pulling people apart, he attempted to pull people together. But how do we respond even to things that really annoy us sometimes as a pastor? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a woman called uh, 
So every parish has a sacramental emergency line. You'll know this. So if you, if you have somebody who's dying, you need a priest, and you need the priest right away, you call the emergency line, right? And they kind of get in touch with the priest right away. But there are things that happen that most people don't know about, which can be a little bit frustrating for the pastor or for the priest. Uh, this one often gets under our skin. A woman called the emergency line, and so I see my phone, it says sacramental emergency in all caps, and it's kind of late, and I answer the phone, and she says, Father, I know this is an emergency, but is 7 o'clock mass still at 7? Let me know. Thanks. Bye. All right. So I had a a moment. How am I going to respond to this, right? Annoying? Absolutely. But instead of being annoyed and angry about this message on my sacramental line, I thought about it for a moment, and I said, hey, wait a minute. We actually had changed that mass time, which tells me she hadn't been to mass in my parish in a while. It was COVID shutdown, right? And I knew another woman in my parish who loves to evangelize. She loves to meet people. So I sent the voicemail to her, and I said, hey, you call her and talk to her about all of this. She was thrilled. She called the woman, talked about the mass times, asked her about what was happening in her life. Now she comes to mass every Sunday, right? How do we do it? We have to take on a different approach, and it is exhausting to operate this way, right? But it's very valuable. All right, number four, we have to establish and strengthen practices that incarnate the Christian vision. If we're going to make the unseen spiritual world the center of our imagination and our mind, what we're attempting to do is take the invisible things of the universe of God and make them visible. This is why we talk about the church as sacramental. God, to show us the goodness of his glory, did not give us ideas. We think about this very clearly when we read the Old Testament. God is not just an idea. In the law, in the Old Testament, God is the one who arranged the temple. He's the one who created the sacrifices. He wrote the law. He created the Sabbath. He organized the rituals. He told Aaron what to wear. He chose a people, and he told them how to worship. Then God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. The flesh, right? Visible. We strengthen our imagination's ability to grasp the invisible when we grasp hold firmly of the sacramental mind of the church. And the church is brilliant at this. What do we want to do if you forget something, right? If you want to forget something, what's that little phrase we often use? Out of sight, out of mind, right? I just put it away so I don't see it. Huh? So, what does the church say? The church recognizes this, and she says, if I want you to have it in your mind, I want you to see it. And so, what does the church do? We use an incredibly large number of altar servers at 1130 Mass at St. Peter's, right? With all these boys who just process in and process out. We use a whole lot of incense, right? All this smoke. And you say, what are we doing, Father Brew? We're showing you the sacred. 
that God is mysterious. We use candles and stained glass, and we wear vestments instead of suits. We have statues, icons, holy water. We use processions. The church has a language, and we speak that language in visible things. Architecture is so important because we recognize that in the world of architecture, buildings profess what we believe. The period of building ugly church buildings cannot end soon enough because ugly things give us ugly ideas about God. But the opposite is true too. Beautiful things give us beautiful ideas about God and heaven. Church bells are a great example that just go off in the middle while you're trying to give a parish mission. Father, how often priests hear this? Father Brew has heard this in a number of his parishes because we've laughed about it. Father, your bells are annoying. Yeah, so is the devil. So... We're going to make the devil go away, and we're going to ring the bells at 6, 12, and 6, so you pray the Angelus, right? We encourage beautiful things, because some of the most beautiful places of human gathering on planet Earth were built by the church. You go to Vatican, go to the Vatican, go to Lourdes, go to all these places of pilgrimage. Uh, When I spent time in Europe um, for seminary in Rome, you want to know it was really fascinating? One of the highest groups of people who visit Marian pilgrimage sites, Muslims. Um, The women of Islam flock to the places of Marian apparition. It's powerful. Number five, we have to allocate resources in parish life with this apostolicity in mind, this apostolic mindset. In a transitional time, leaders must lend attention not just to maintenance of current institutions, and we've got a lot of them to maintain, but we also have to develop a new apostolic initiative. The idea that all boats will rise together has proved to be false. Often, the boats end up sinking at the same time. What we need to do is invest resources to make those who are on fire burn even brighter. And this sounds really counterintuitive until we read the gospel. Jesus encouraged his apostles, and he encouraged those who were more faithful even more. We can do this, uh, we're headed out of wintertime, but you can take a fire, which is burning nice and bright. And what if you decided to spread the heat out evenly Take your logs on your nice little fire pit or your uh, outside your bonfire and put the logs out evenly spaced. What happens to the fire? It goes out. What happens if you push them together? It burns even brighter. Not all people participate in renewal in the same way, with the same energy. That's fine. But the gospel preached by Jesus was give it to the one who had ten Whoever has more, more will be given. And to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. How did Jesus change the world? He had 12 apostles, just 12, right? And those went around to spread the gospel. One of the things we can do in parish life is ensure that we're taking our apostles, those most on fire with the faith, 
and give them what they need to truly be successful. Number six, when you start living an apostolic mindset in the church, it's really messy. Just giving you a heads up. It's really messy. And this is what Pope Francis refers to often. Living, breathing disciples who are on fire for Christ and the gospel and faith cause problems from time to time because they are not satisfied with the status quo. Taking on apostolic initiatives brings risks, right? Look at the gospels carefully. What did Jesus call James and John? The sons of thunder, right? How often did Jesus have to rebuke them from time to time? Paul the apostle was not our first choice for seminarians today, right? He's not mild and friendly and without trouble. Paul the apostle looked like a terrible choice to Ananias. Even Ananias was like, I don't know, Lord, you know what he's done? So what this means is that our apostolic efforts may not go completely smoothly. It may be tedious to get new disciples on the road of conversion and to keep them on it. But when they succeed, it's unstoppable. And so, the phrase we have to remove from the way that we operate in church parish life, we've always done it this way. No. What we're doing in a lot of places is not working. So let's change it, right? It's messy and it's hard and it requires some creativity, but it's okay. Number seven, expect cultural influence to be exercised primarily by witness. In an apostolic age, influence in a radical living of the gospel is a real witness to the world, not just teaching, right? It's not just explanation of the faith. It's living it with zeal. Um, if you're not familiar with it, you may have seen a couple of articles, but I hope you've at least encountered it from time to time. Uh, Father Michael Champagne in the Diocese of Lafayette really has a brilliance in his own spirituality about this. He decided, hey, let's celebrate the arrival of the Acadians coming into Louisiana. So what are we going to do? We're going to put the Eucharist on a big monstrance on a boat, and we're going to do a Eucharistic procession up the river right? Fabulous. It's really incredible, right? I'm going to take an ambulance and convert it into a mobile confessional. So he did. He bought an ambulance and turned it into a confessional, right? And you call him and he'll drive the ambulance to the front of your church, park it, and listen to confessions, right? Last year, he bought a fire truck, and he built a gigantic pulpit. It's larger than this, on top of the fire truck, so he can firely preach the word of God, right? I think he stole it from Bishop Barron. Don't tell Bishop Barron, right? Word on fire, fire truck. All right, very good. The ancient world was impressed with the witness of the Christians. They believed it, and they were willing to do something new. And in one of the most powerful ways, I spoke with the youth group about this on Sunday night, the most powerful witness of the early church was martyrdom, right? 
to believe it to the point of shedding their blood. We can't influence the culture by trying to be liked. We have to be faithful to the gospel first and accept whatever comes to us because of that. You may not even know it. You may not remember. Mother Teresa was ridiculed while she was alive and even since she's been dead because she cared for the dying. Christopher Hitchens eviscerated Mother Teresa in a book whose name I won't even say out loud because of the way that he perceived her caring for the dying. We recognize that living a witness to the faith faithfully is often accomplished in the unseen. You know, if you ask Mother Teresa what her most important accomplishment was during the day would be, it wasn't that she cared for the sick or the dying. Mother Teresa changed the world by prayer. Because in her eye, what was the most important thing she and her sister did was engaged in a holy hour. Countless hours spent praying before the Lord in the tabernacle. And in fact, uh, some of the sisters said, Mother Teresa, shouldn't we be out there doing more things? You know what she did? She made them do two holy hours. Number eight, we have to transition. We have to see that in a transition from, and this is the last one, from a Christendom age to an apostolic age, we cannot mistakenly believe that having the majority status is the authentic position of the church. So as we transition from Christendom to an apostolic era, we cannot think that we have to have a majority position for the church to be successful. There's a temptation to be silent or do away with things because we're afraid it won't keep people in the pews. In the Gospel of John, Jesus gives a clear teaching on the Eucharist. And what happens? As a result, many of those who followed him returned to their former way of life. Jesus didn't attempt to change their minds or his position. He simply looked at his apostles and he says, will you leave also? Jesus asks us to be faithful, not successful. If the world will not raise itself to the church, the church is tempted to lower itself to the world. And when this happens, it's got devastating and disastrous results. So what does the church need to do? The church needs to call us to a higher standard of life. The church needs to make more exacting demands of us. But when she does, the church is brilliant at this with amazing success. And truthfully, we find that this really speaks to people out in the world. What's one of the most highly attended masses of the entire year? Ash Wednesday. One of the most well-attended masses of the year, more than holy days outside of Christmas and Easter, is Ash Wednesday. It's not even a holy day of obligation. Don't tell everybody. You don't have to come to Mass on Ash Wednesday. However, the church, in her brilliance, puts some dirt on your head, tells you you're going to die, you need to repent, or you're going to hell, and what happens? It's packed every year. And so I think there's this enormous opportunity to capitalize on this. Because what happens on Ash Wednesday and in the season of Lent? The church calls us to a higher mode of living, asking us to 
let go of some of the things in the world. The church's primary position in times of unbelief, and you're going to hear this as time goes on. You're going to hear this uh, criticism. Just as the church demands more from her members in the apostolic age, in an apostolic age, the church expects less of everybody else. In Christian, uh, in the apostolic age, the church will demand more of her believers, and so she's okay if everybody else leads less. Because the church understands that the demands of the Christian life are not predominant in the culture. And so, notice, if you go read the church's history very, very carefully, when the church is not in a primary position in times of great unbelief, the church does not attempt to impose law on the society at large. What does she do? She invites everyone to mercy, hope, and the challenge of a new relationship with God that demands a renouncing of the ways of the world. The church doesn't impose law. She invites to mercy. Why? Because the church never expects someone else in society to do more than we are willing to do ourselves. Jesus never asked any member of the church to do something that he was not willing to do himself. For American Catholics, this is particularly hard and sobering. In the last half century, there has been an unconscious embrace by many Catholics of an American narrative vision by which the United States is seen effectively as the church. There's a strong strain in the American mythical narrative that views America and the country we live in as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so we're actually kind of seeing this religious fervor in American patriotism, that the most important issues we face today seem to be sorted out in the realm of politics. And you hear this, that America's losing its way. But remember, our concern as Catholics is that the worldwide church, called to be a light of the world, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, remains faithful to Jesus Christ first. And that when we are held to faith in Jesus Christ, we are raised to a higher standard of purity. If the United States of America is not living the ideals given to her members by the founders of our country, we've become afraid that the world as a whole is going to go astray. There's a certain strain of thought that if America is not disseminating capitalistic democracy and our particular style of government and the way of life is not making inroads around the world, we think that hope is lost. My friends, we cannot equate a decline of the American ethos with the decline of the health of the Catholic Church. Whatever the genuine virtues of American history are, the importance of the United States of America for the salvation of the human soul is grossly inadequate compared to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, we love our country, and we hope that we can engender hope and prosperity beyond our borders and even within our borders. But there is a dangerous assumption to equate eternal salvation with American politics right now and American living. That honor belongs to Jesus Christ and the church alone. America will be corrupted by the ways of the world. 
America will eventually fall to sinful human weakness, as unfortunate as that might be. And so what do we do? We remember that it was the Blessed Mother who was immaculately conceived, not the Constitution of the United States or the Declaration of Independence. We are awaiting and praying for the glorious return of Jesus Christ, not George Washington. I would settle for Ronald Reagan, but don't allow the changes of government, law, politics to affect your holiness. We are not saved by the government. You're saved by Jesus, right? And so we keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. Our task is to be faithful to Jesus Christ and the church. Okay, in summary, we are in a deep transitional stage. A Christendom culture is one that easily perceives and knows the teachings of Christianity. An apostolic age is one where the church meets resistance whenever she preaches. Yes, we are leaving Christendom behind and headed headlong into an apostolic age where it seems we might meet resistance at every turn. Thus, we have to keep this narrative in mind as we make pastoral strategies for the future. Tonight, we discussed eight points to keep in mind as our parishes navigate this together. Number one, develop an apostolic strategy. Number two, avoid an emphasis of social analysis. Remember, miracles are more important. Number three, make every institution personal, an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ and the triune God. Number four, everything we do, our practices need to be incarnational, making the invisible visible. Number five, allocate resources in parish life with this apostolicity in mind to go out and bring the gospel. When you do, number six, be prepared to put up with messiness. Number seven, the most important influence is the power of witness. Share what you love about the faith with anyone you meet. And number eight, don't be worried that we're going to lose a majority status. Having the majority status in a society is not synonymous with apostolic success. Remaining faithful to Jesus Christ and the church is. Tomorrow night, we're going to discuss how we do this in a special way within Mass. We're going to focus on sacramentality. We're going to talk about this idea of the invisible becoming, invis becoming visible more. And uh, if I have a little bit of time, we'll talk about some of the obstacles that make this a challenge today. Uh, but tomorrow night, we will conclude the mission uh, with the celebration of Mass at 6 o'clock. The mission uh, will take, is that correct, Father Brew? Mass will be at 6.30. Okay, we will start at 6.30, and my uh, presentation will be the homily during Mass, and we will conclude with the solemn blessing at the end. So join us tomorrow for Mass, and the, uh, if you stay through the solemn blessing, and we pray and, excuse me, fulfill all of those um, requirements for the plenary indulgence, perhaps we can win some souls for Christ. Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Divine and Heavenly Father, send forth the Holy Spirit into our hearts to light us anew. Ignite each of our hearts and our souls to share the love that we have for you. And Heavenly Father, we ask you to raise up modern apostles and disciples to witness to the great power of faith to all that we meet. We ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns forever and ever. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. We'll see you tomorrow at 6.30.